0: This audio recordings of our regular Sunday service, June 9th, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Ephesians. As uh, for you creatures of habit, uh, we are changing things slightly. Let it hopefully be known that as you gather uh, here at Restoration Road Church that you can see we are about two very important things, the Word of God and prayer. Um, as you g- gather at different places in different churches, I'm sure you could identify the different things that are important to them. But to us, the Word of God and prayer important. And so we will emphasize to that end. Today, though, is just an awesome day. I was sitting there just singing and smiling uh, because you guys sound good, uh, but at the same time, just joyful at the faces that I've seen, but now get to see more often. uh, And know that this is a, a first, right? It's a new first. There'll never be another first like this. There's that first kiss, that first date, that first, you know, whatever, first child that's born, there'll never be another first like this. And so it is a very special day. And so for that occasion, I thought it important for us to pause uh, from Ecclesiastes, so you weren't depressed the first time we were together, and be encouraged uh, as we look at the letter of Ephesians. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read the first 13 verses, and that is where we will spend our time. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heaven, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is God's word. And many in response to saying this is God's word will often say either amen, which just means I agree this is true, or praise be to God, thank you for giving us your word. So when we say that, that's why you might hear different people responding in any way. It's fantastic. Now, many of you already know, but some of you don't. I was a, I'm a teacher in a preacher's body, and so I often give a lot of teaching-ish kind of background of stuff, and I want to start a little bit with Ephesus so you understand where the church of Ephesus was, how it came about, so we can understand what Paul is saying here. Um, You can read about the planting of this church in Acts chapter 19, and that it's an historical record of really the early church uh, beginning with the uh, resurrection and ascension of Christ Paul, the Apostle Paul, had arrived in, um, from the city of Corinth, is where he was at, and he came into Ephesus, and he went directly into the synagogues, which is kind of his practice, and he began to preach boldly and reason with them from the Scriptures about Jesus being the long-awaited Messiah. And he did this for three months, went in every day for three months, and debated and persuaded and preached, and through that effort, disciples were made, people Jews in particular began to believe in Jesus, and a church was ultimately planted. And so Paul remained in this city, which is an incredibly strategically located city, uh, very much a metropolis that, that is connected to uh, b- basically most of Asia. And he spent every day in this hall of Tyrannus, uh, which sounds like something out of Star Wars, for two years teaching these people. We kind of have this idea that Paul just skipped around, but he spent good lengths of time, and particularly in Ephesus, a church that he loved. And he was so effective there that Luke records that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord from his work. In his time there, the word was preached, and miracles were performed, and people believed, and the church continued to grow. And if you read Acts 19, it's a pretty amazing story. Luke records how as people who were pagan and, and were, were spiritists and, and into witchcraft and all kinds of things, they started to repent. They started to burn their magic books and idols in the center of town. The gospel so took over the city of Ephesus that it actually disrupted the economy, which was largely about building idols and, and funding, if you will, these false religions. And so it ended with Paul basically uh, being kind of pushed out of town or run out of town. There was riots and all kinds of things, which was kind of Paul's M.O., just about every city he went to. But a very strong church was grown. And so before leaving for Jerusalem, where he would ultimately be arrested and then sent to Rome... Paul called the elders out of Ephesus. The Ephesian elders said, come and see me for my last words to you. And you can read this in Acts chapter 20. And they come and meet him in a different city just south of Ephesus. And Paul speaks his final words to them. And he says in Ephesians 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves are going to come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to do what? To draw away disciples after them. So the last words that Paul spoke to the church that he loved in Ephesus was really warning them about disunity that could come as a result of wolves from within. Four years later, he writes this letter to the same church. And we find, as we read today, that some of the last words Paul actually wrote to the Ephesians was about the same thing. Unity. And so I thought it appropriate that the first words, hopefully not my last, but the first words that I speak to this group to our church on our first Sunday should focus on the same thing, unity. Now, our leaders began this merge conversation months ago. Our members made this decision, well, it's probably weeks ago. And now, as we gather this morning, we believe that we are better together. But there's a reason why Paul writes so much about unity. There's a reason Why he warns about unity. There's a reason why we must preach about unity. That's because unity doesn't just happen. In fact, the very opposite often does. Our two paths have come together into one, if you will, and like some kind of awkward three legged race, if we don't learn to walk together, we will hurt each other, look stupid. Or harm our Gospel witness. If you've ever been in a three-legged relationship, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's a rhythm you have to learn. A unity that has to be grown between you. We use a word like community. You break it down. and What it really speaks of is sharing something in common that binds us together. And if you look at the world, there's all kinds of communities. There's a gym right over there that has great community. Pray that, by God's grace, they will find a new space and build their community elsewhere. But we love them while they're here. We love them. But if you think about it, there's all kinds of communities in the world, and most of them are centered around affinity. They're centered or built on ethnicity, activity, shared opinion, or cause. As the church comes together, really practically speaking, if we talk about the kind of people we are, we spend any amount of time together, you're going to find that we have very different pasts, very different preferences, very different passions, and very different personalities. And so what binds our community together is not actually our natural commonality many of us would not be together because we're so different if not for that which supernaturally binds us together, which is Christ. Unlike the world, our unity is not found in promoting self-expression for the glory of a person, but actually it's found in pursuing self-denial for the glory of our one true God it's totally different now unity without doubt is something that I think we do for and unto Christ but it begins with understanding it's something that we actually are in Christ this is why Paul begins in his first verses in chapter 4 this way I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of Of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So, if we read this carefully, it's fascinating because Paul urges us, yes, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, right? The imagery of walk is used often by us. How's your walk? Do you ever wonder where that came from? Speaking about our faith, speaking about our relationship with Christ. The Bible speaks often about walking, walking in the Spirit, walking in the light, walking in love, walking by faith, and here walking worthy. Walking worthy. He charges. Christians to walk worthy of their calling, implying that there's an unworthy way to walk. Walking worthy of our calling. When we speak of calling, again, that's another term that we could probably spend a whole sermon on, unpacking because it's been a little hackneyed or overused so much that it's kind of lost its meaning. But when we talk about calling, like God's calling, Jesus' calling, that's that irresistible invitation to believe. Like, men may ignore the calls of other men, but when Jesus calls your name, there is no resisting. When Jesus says your name, and if you are a Christian today, at some point in your life, Jesus called your name. And you responded because you couldn't resist. And He saved you. That was the day you became new. And those who have been called, believed. And those who believe have been called. And so for Paul to say, walk in a manner worthy of your calling is to say to Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, live what you believe. Be who you are in Christ. He's calling us, charging us, to just be who we are. But it's incredibly noteworthy that he teaches that a worthy walk is never a private, solitary stroll with God. Like in our culture, particularly in the Northwest, we individualize everything. Our spirituality is personal. More than that, it's private. Our individualized responses to worship, our individualized interpretations, all of those things elevating the individual But Paul teaches us that you cannot walk in a manner worthy of your call as a Christian without walking with other brothers and sisters in Christ. He says they go together. There is no such thing as a worthy walk without others. That's partly counterintuitive and incredibly countercultural. And we know this is what Paul is talking about because He characterizes a worthy walk in relational terms. It's very rare for us to be humble and gentle and patient by ourselves. I'm so gentle with myself. I'm so patient with myself. I'm so humble while I'm all alone and nobody's around. Like these are relational things. The measure of your humility, the measure of your gentleness, the measure of your patience Plays itself out with other people. I've heard it said, I don't know who, but it makes a lot of sense that humility is the first, second, and third essential characteristic of a Christian. Tim Keller describes humility as not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It is self forgetfulness. Without forgetting yourself, you will not be gentle but demanding. Without forgetting yourself, you will not be patient but intolerant. Without forgetting yourself, guess what? It's all about you and that is as much antichrist as you can get. While Jesus could have used any attributes to describe himself, it is Christ who said in Matthew 11:29, "Take my yoke upon you and learn from me." For I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. So to walk in a manner worthy is to think like Christ. It is to feel like Christ. It is to walk like Christ. And a worthy walk is a humbling walk with others. As if their interests Their needs, their preferences are more important than mine. And Paul, as he writes, it's interesting how much he warns about the vulnerability of our unity. That the spirit is willing, right? But the flesh is incredibly weak. And when you get a collective number of fleshes together, it gets perhaps even worse. So he says we have to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Right? He, he really is saying we need to make every effort, some translations will say, every effort to guard the unity that God has made for us in Christ. Christ Himself didn't describe us as peacekeepers, but peacemakers. There's a huge difference. In humility, as we walk with one another, we must Strive to get as low as we can so as to guard our union. And the gospel is that bond of peace that He's talking about. It is the truth that does two very powerful things. It defines us and it controls us. It not only tells us who we are, but it tells us how we ought to relate to one another and to the world. God saved us together, He gathered us together, and He grew us together in this bond of peace. And he is really just echoing, Paul is, what he wrote earlier in Ephesians. If you turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, here he talks about the forming of the church between these two very different peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles. He says he forged them in Christ into one Man, if you will. They couldn't have been any more different. And in verse 17 it says, He came and He preached peace. Peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him, that's Christ, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Verse 19, So then, Since peace has been made with God for all of us together, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are also being built together. We are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, if you can follow the analogy, like these two very different peoples, in a similar sense, our two churches have been mysteriously brought together as one. And while I hope there was never any hostility between us, Certainly, I'm liking that. (laughs) Certainly, we're strangers, or were. But now, we're one family. Strangers have become one family. People who didn't know one another have become part of the same story. When Jesus saved you to himself, he also saved us to one another and he foresaw this day before the foundation of the world. And despite the differences in our lives and our testimonies, we are saved from the same sin by the same Savior who gives us the same grace. And despite the differences in our passions and our preferences, we are adopted in the same family and so we must fight for and not with one another. And I can say that now because like, oh, we're not fighting. It's great. That day will come. (laughs) That day will come when we don't like each other. We misunderstand each other. And Paul's saying, we we got to fight for family. Because that's a term, unfortunately, that's a little abused in the culture. And depending on the family you grew up in, might be a little twisted for you. But when all is said and done, we're family. And that binds us together in Christ and causes us to love one another and to fight for one another in ways that the world cannot understand. The truth is, we can disagree about any number of unimportant things, but we must remain unified around the important things. And it can be confusing what's important and what's unimportant. But we agree that like, well, what's important to you and what you prefer may be different than what's important to me and what I prefer, but there's a group of things that go, this is important to us. Paul teaches us that the bond of our unity Is founded on something in particular, or many somethings, I should say. And what you read as you as you begin to read verses four through six in Ephesians chapter four, you see that our unity is actually not sourced in man's fickleness, but in God's faithfulness. Men change, women change, opinions change, desires, preferences, passions change. But what binds us together never changes, no matter how much the world changes. The first verses of Ephesians 1 is probably one of the best texts to describe what it means to be a Christian. If you're ever wondering, what, it, what does it mean to be a Christian? Open up the book of Ephesians, read chapter 1. And what is interesting is that you'll read a ton of, and we we're talking about this at the elders meeting, indicative statements. Here comes the English teacher and me, right? What's an indicative statement, student? What's the difference between that? An imperative statement, student. Right? An imperative is a command, something you gotta do. An indicative is this is who you are. You don't gotta do anything. It indicates something. Chapter one is full of indicative statements describing not what we must do to be Christian, but what God has done. And the basic summary reveals that being a Christian means this. You've been chosen by God. You've been blessed by God. You've been redeemed by God. You've been forgiven by God. You've been adopted by God. You've been sealed by God. What did I contribute? Your sin. Good job. And He fixed everything. God in Christ gave us a new identity and He gave us a new family and He gave us a new destiny that defines who we are. That's foundational to our unity and this is how Paul writes it in Ephesians chapter 4 he says there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call and there was one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all who is over all through all and in all we are individual people called into one community together by one spirit for one hope In one Lord through one faith, marked by one baptism for all people under one loving God. There's so much in that. I'm sure they have huge theological books written on every one of those different things. But if we just kind of parse it out a little bit, a couple things to note is that first, there is one body. There is one church. And while we think it is Incredibly important to be a member of a local, visible church, we must never forget that there is one church that is invisible across the globe throughout all generations. That while redemption and restoration practically come together today in the truest sense, guess what? We have always been part of the same church. Amen? That causes you to look at other churches very differently. As long as they're preaching the same Gospel we are, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Regardless of the names on their signs. And by one Spirit, God saves. One Spirit saves. One Spirit teaches. One Spirit empowers us and sends us into the world. That's important because what happens... When two people go like, well, the Holy Spirit's telling me this. Well, the Holy Spirit's telling me this in the same family. And it's different. That's not supposed to happen, right? If it's one Spirit, this is the basis of our unity. That one Spirit is teaching us and one Spirit is speaking to us. That there is a unity in what we believe. There's a unity in how we ought to live. There's a unity in what we teach. And knowing that the Spirit of God doesn't contradict Himself should push us away from personal interpretations and individualized callings of God. Having all believed one faith, we'll go through Jude in the fall and he talks about there was one faith given. We are to contend earnestly for the one faith delivered to the saints. The Gospel doesn't change as culture changes. The news is news, and it's the same news that was told many, many years ago. And we hope in the one Savior's return, and we live under the one Lord who speaks through His one Word, especially as we gather as one church full of baptized believers. And more than baptism just being a sign of our oneness with Christ, which it is, did you know that it's actually a covenant sign of our unity with one another? There's no such thing in the New Testament of being just baptized into Jesus. There's baptism into communities. There was a connection. An identification with Christ and an identification with His people. It also reminds us Because baptism is part of our mission to go and to preach preach good news to the world so that God's kingdom increases. And so, if you go, what is at the core of our unity, the foundation of our unity? It's quite simple. It is the authority of Scripture. It is the centrality of the Gospel. It's the nature of the church. It's the importance of baptism. And it's the Great Commission. That's as basic as it gets. Everything else is a blessed bonus. Everything else. What about an awesome kids' ministry? Bonus. Men's Bonus. Worship. Bonus. The thing that we talk about as the foundational things. We can disagree about how all those things happen, but we don't disagree about the authority of Scripture. We don't disagree about the centrality of the Gospel. We don't disagree about the nature of the church and our call to go into the world and make disciples and baptize believers. Those aren't negotiable. And that builds our unity. And even though that's a lot, and it is a lot, that we have this common spirituality, we must never let unity become uniformity. Because there's lots of things we can disagree on. And those differences in many ways, in personality, in past, and in passions, those are gifts from God. See, after hammering, in many ways, our collective oneness, Paul speaks about our personal uniqueness. In verse 7 he says, grace was given to each one of us. Right? He's like, we're one, there's one this, one that, one this, one this. He's like, but, grace was given to each one of us. Uniquely, individually, personally. According to the measure of Christ's gift, therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. See, in Christ, we have kind of come into something, been brought in, adopted into something that is not centered on us, and yet our uniqueness is not lost in the collective. In fact, it is employed by it. That God has gifted each of us uniquely in order to make the community stronger. Paul writes that God has given grace, undeserved favor to each one of us in the form of these spiritual gifts. And the Bible has several different texts where it speaks about these, whether it be gifts of leadership or service, hospitality, creativity, evangelism, faith, wisdom, teaching, all these things. And even though it's a joy, it should be a joy, yes, you can take spiritual gift tests. Nothing wrong with those. But what I find is that gifting is pretty evident. It's those things that in many ways you're good at and you have joy in. If you don't know Dick Lee, you'll eventually know him because you will accidentally put a chair in the wrong place and he will let you know that that is the case. But you don't know perhaps that Dick, he's my father-in-law, he is at the church all the time taking care of things that if they weren't taken care of, everybody would be like, this place is a dump. And he doesn't get much credit for it. But he doesn't do it because I said, okay, father-in-law, I'm your pastor. You should be uh, at the church. Like, that's not how it works, right? I probably should probably encourage him to not be here as much as he is. But the bottom line, he loves it. It fills him up. It's not work to him. It's a gift of service that he has. It's easy. It's enjoyable. That's the giftedness I'm talking about. And every single one of us has some gift like that that's different than one another. But also, there's some that are probably the same as one another. And it's a joy to use our gifts, but newsflash, they were not given primarily for you. Even though it's a blessing to use them. Paul says in his first letter into the Corinthians chapter 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. One of the most frequently used metaphors, obviously, for the church is a body, and the Bible will often talk about the members of a church as body parts, the head obviously being Christ, implying that without the head, the body doesn't work, Right? though I would argue that some churches have tried to do that. You have a lot of headless churches running around with all kinds of body parts and no life. But the different parts of the body under the head of Christ are are given, brought together, so that they will work together so that the body actually works the way it's designed. And every body is shaped a little bit differently. Like, one church doesn't look like another necessarily. It just says our bodies don't look the same. They're shaped differently, they look different heights, different widths, different depths, right? And it's interesting how much we celebrate some of those parts that are really visible. Some of those parts that are like the preaching, and the music, and the programs, the people doing these things, and that guy doing that, and that lady doing that, and you're like that's a, you know what Paul says? It's the invisible parts that are actually most important in that same chapter of 12 in the letter to the Corinthians, he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, he says, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our presentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that it lacked, that there be no division. There's that unity again. That there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. Loving one another's gifts. Loving one another's talents. Loving how God has made you and wondering, wow, I wonder how you're going to shape this body. Because every part is different and every part is vital and some of the less impressive, less loud, less obvious parts are the most important. Like, imagine doing life with some of the parts that right now we can't see. Yeah, follow the analogy through and you're like, I can't imagine life without that. That would be horrible. Without thumbs. Think about that. That would be difficult without arms and legs, but without some of those more precious parts that we can't even see. Each of us is something, is my point. And we wrongly, I think, when we gather as the church and we think about the church, we think so much about ourselves. I don't even think in the most selfish terms, but it's probably a little selfish. And when we're not engaged with the church, when we're not pressing the church, we're not knowing and being known and we're not involved in the church, I think a lot of times it's like, well, it probably just hurts me. I'm here to tell you, it hurts all of us. That we never think naturally about what our absence or what our passivity, how it might be affecting someone else. Well, it's probably just, I mean, I'm losing out, I guess. No, no, we're missing out. We're less because of that. The Bible makes it very clear that we are dependent upon one another. And it's foolish to believe that you, if you're a leg, that you can live on your own. How many legs do you see running around, hopping around by themselves? And you follow the analogy through like maybe you're a hurting leg. Well, guess what? Unless it's connected to the body, it's not going to heal. It's going to die. And why would you ever believe that you as a leg are benefiting the body by not allowing it to have an extra leg, right? You should think and as, as you leg, sit out on the golf course and, and play golf or whatever you do that is not gathering with the church, not serving with the church, not being with the church and going, oh, I'm the only one missing out here, as the church is running around like this. Don't worry, we're doing good. We got it. Think about that. You have to begin to view yourself as that. And my hope is this, that you'll be present, that we we'll all be present, that we'll all press in, that we'll all see God do something in the most amazing way together. But if for some reason you have to leave, if for some reason God calls you to another church or another place, that there's a U-shaped hole. And if there's not a U-shaped hole because of your absence, it's possible you're not actually connected to the church, and we're less because of it, and so are you. Now, finally, as we consider just the last couple of verses here, I want us to consider what God means by this idea of diversity, because our culture's celebration of diversity seems to actually work against unity. I want us to remember that God gave us gifts, but He didn't give gifts for our glory. 1 Peter 4 tells us this, As each has received a gift, yes, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Again, God focused, God doing it all. Why would we do that? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. I find it interesting how many passages in Scripture call us to obedience and call us to certain actions for the glory of God and not because of primarily the benefit to us, though I do believe it does. The church is designed to be this beautiful display of diversity that builds unity. But I will tell you this because I've heard it many times between many people Unity for the sake of unity, honestly, is meaningless at best, and it's dangerous at worst. Unity is for the purpose of God's glory. Unity for the purpose of God's glory is a divine command, and it's actually part of God's mission. He tells us in these last verses that these gifts He gave the apostles, He gave the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Like the only way that diversity, like this, this beautiful diversity of gifts can actually build unity when it's used for a purpose, when it's on mission, right? We don't just walk together. Hey, let's just walk together. That'd be awesome. No, we walk together in a particular direction for a specific purpose. If we're not careful, we can be unified around the right things for the wrong reasons. You can build a fantastic church that brings glory to ourselves and not to God. We can lead, and serve, and play music, and give, and even preach for self-serving purposes. A worthy walk is, is certainly not less than walking together, but it is so much more. And this is where that first verse was read this morning out of Philippians. That let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side because it's so awesome to do that. No, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel. That is why we exist. That the Gospel might go forth to more people. That news might be proclaimed to more people. That God's kingdom might grow because of our unity and efforts On mission together. Here in Ephesians 4, Paul says that God has given gifts to his church to bring everyone to maturity as they do the work of ministry. And you go, well, what's the ministry he's talking about? Men's ministry? We're brought together for men's ministry. We're brought together for women's ministry. We're brought together for kids' ministry. We're brought together for music ministry. Oh, it must be youth ministry he's talking about. That's the most important for this next generation. What's the ministry he's talking about? Equipping us for ministry. We use that term all the time. Well, I'll tell you right now, we're not talking about a program. We're talking about the ministry of restoration of the relationship between God and man. That is our purpose here. We have not been given the gifts for great programs, but for a great mission. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And we will close with this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. We have a new identity. But it doesn't stop there. We like that verse. That's a great tattoo verse. Right? Keep going. All this is from God. Wait, wait, wait. This isn't something we did. No, it's all about God. God did all this. Who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and what gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I thought He gave us youth ministry. Nope. Ministry of reconciliation. That is, He explains it, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to Himself not counting their sins against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Wait, now we got a message of reconciliation. we got a ministry and a message. Therefore, knowing we have a ministry and a message, what are we? Ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us using all of our unity, all of our gifts, all of our love, all of our gathering, all of our efforts to do what? To see others reconcile to God. This is why he says, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is why we exist. We don't exist to have an awesome gathering, though I'm glad we have an awesome gathering. We don't exist to build amazing programs that the city talks about and is so impressed by. We exist to see people saved by Jesus Christ, period. Otherwise, we ought not exist. We exist to love one another like Christ. We exist to see others know the hope of Christ. We exist because Christ has said we exist for His purposes and not our own. Did you know that the word for ministry actually at its core means servant? Jesus Himself said, right? The infinite Son of God, the eternal Creator said that He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He came for us. He died for us. He was raised for us. We were served by Jesus. Why? So that we might serve the world in service to Him. Can you imagine if that was our mentality as a people? I'm a servant. I'm a servant. I have a ministry of reconciliation. I am here to serve others in service to Him. Can you imagine that mentality of, as a person, as a family, as a community of hundreds of people saying to one another, it's not about me, what can I do for you? It's not about me, what can I do for you? On the smallest scale and the biggest scale, as a person, as a family, as a church, that would change the city. That would change the world not about me what can I do for you that is the heart of Christ Restoration Road Church we walk worthy when we serve God when we serve one another and when we serve the world in all unity and know this that our commitment to serve in this way is the path to greatness as a church if you want to be great Jesus tells disciples serve So if you would like to be great, I don't know if I want to be great, if you want to be great in the eyes of God, get low and serve one another. Period. Because that's what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did for us. Amen? I love this church. What a glorious day. Let's pray.